Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside J.J. Cooper. We're here to break down the Nolan Arenado trade today. We've seen a number of big trades this offseason. Back in December, J.J., you and I talked about the Blake Snell and you Darvish trades as well as the Josh Bell trade. Here now, January and technically February 1st with Arenado. We've seen Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco moved. We've seen the Pirates do some more sell-off type of trades, Joe Musgrove and Jamison Tyone. And the big one that became official on Monday – The Cardinals acquiring Nolan Arenado, at worst, one of the three best third basemen in Major League Baseball, at best, and I think there's a compelling argument that he is the best third baseman in Major League Baseball, and pretty much one of the 10 best position players in all of Major League Baseball. Let's just be blunt and upfront about it. The Cardinals acquired one of the 10 best position players in Major League Baseball without giving up any of their top young major leaguers or any of their top 10 prospects. When you look at this trade, I mean, just, I know we were all kind of like, wow, that's it. But I mean, how do you suss this out? Cause I think from the outside looking in, it's an absolute coup for the Cardinals. Oh yeah. I mean, that's so <laughs> here is the thing. If you're a Cardinals fan, there were Cardinals fans were very grumpy early this off season very grumpy. I mean, my interactions doing the Cardinals list this year, they were upset about their outfield. They were upset about, you know, feeling like they hadn't put everything together, all that. Well, happier now. They should be a lot happier now. Who, who cares if you fixed your outfield? You know, who cares if you traded Randy or Rosarena last year? You have just added, now admittedly, potentially for as little as one year. However, let's just lay out the parameters of this. So there are two scenarios. In scenario one, Nolan Arenado assumingly has a great season and chooses to opt out. He's already indicated that he might not in his first press conference, but he has the right to. He may opt out after the 2021 season. If that is the case, that is assuming that Nolan Arenado He's not going to opt out if he hits 220 this year, you know, with no power, the defense, you know, takes a step back, all that. It's going to be that he had a Nolan Arenado type season. And if that's the case, then the Rockies, some of the money's deferred, but effectively will have paid the full salary of Nolan Arenado for 2021. So at that point, 
what you've essentially done if you're the Cardinals is acquired Nolan Arenado for free for one year at the cost of four minor leaguers, the top of which on our current, you know, our list of top 30 before this ranked as the number 14th prospect in a very good, deep, I would say deep more than anything, Cardinal system. But that's the like one scenario. Scenario two is Nolan Arenado plays for the Cardinals for a long, you know, does not opt out, plays for the Cardinals for quite a long period of time. And if that's the case, then the Cardinals will pay him a significant salary going forward. But again, if I'm a Cardinals fan, I, I, that's not something that really affects me. That's not something that really bothers me about how much the Cardinals have to pay for one of the better players in baseball, one of the best players of the past decade. That's a win. I, I don't know another way. There's, there, it's hard to have wins this, you know, if you're a Padres fan, you absolutely feel like you've won this offseason from the standpoint of the amount of talent you've brought in. But you do kind of at least in the back of your head, like, ah, Patino, you know, you do hate to give away Luis Patino. In the back of your head, you're like, well, maybe Hudson Head turns into something. This is the trade where if El Juris Montero, who was the best prospect that the Rockies acquired in this trade, reaches his upper level ceiling of what he can be, he's the second best player in this trade. Is that, I think that's a fair way to put it. There's no question. If El Harris Montero gets back the form that made him the Midwest League MVP in 2018 and the top 100 prospect and is able to fulfill all his projections of hit, power, et cetera, he still does not project to be as good as Nolan Arenado. So even if he becomes a very good everyday third baseman for the Rockies, it's not going to really matter for the Cardinals because they have Nolan Arenado. But I think what really jumped out to me about this trade, JJ, was even in the context of Nolan Arenado, for all intents and purposes, was going to opt out after the 2021 season if he remained in Colorado. Just all signs pointed to that. He had made his displeasure with the club's direction abundantly clear. His relationship with general manager Jeff Bridge had publicly deteriorated. Everything, again, pointed to him opting out after the 2021 season. So, If you think about this as a trade of a guy who realistically you're only going to have for one more year, then yes, that dynamic means you're going to accept a lesser trade return. But even in that context, if you compare this to other trades of guys who were set to leave at the end of the year, I mean, the Rockies didn't get close to what the market had established. So let's go back a few years. Paul Goldschmidt, one year left on his deal, the Diamondbacks move him. In return from the Cardinals, the Diamondbacks received a young major leaguer who was formerly a top 100 prospect in Luke Weaver, one top 100 prospect, Carson Kelly, another player who was in the 10 to 20 range of their system and Andy Young and a draft pick. Okay. So we've set this baseline of for a star position player with one year left, who's probably going to leave at the end of the year or potentially will leave at the end of the year. Young major leaguer who was once a top 100 prospect, a top 100 prospect and one to two other pieces. Mookie Betts, same thing. Red Sox trade him away. They got a young major leaguer who was formerly a top 100 prospect and Alex Verdugo, one current top 100 prospect in Jeter Downs, and another player who was in that 10 to 20 range of his former team system, Connor Wong. That return was with the Dodgers taking on David Price's contract as well. Connor Wong yeah. is the equivalent of Alhiris Montero in this trade, and he was the third piece in the deal. So even, let's go to this offseason, the Indians, Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. So, and we'll get into this. I think people underestimate just how good Carlos Carrasco is. 
But even so for that, the prime piece here is the standout top 10 in baseball position player who potentially is going to leave at the end of the year. The Indians got back. You guessed it, a young major leaguer who was formerly a top 100 prospect in Ahmed Rosario, one top 100 prospect in Andres Jimenez, and two players who ranked in that 11 to 20 range of their former team system, Josh Wolf and Isaiah Green. So that's the market for a player of Nolan Arenado's caliber who potentially is going to leave at the end of the year. It's a young big leaguer who was once a top 100 prospect, a current top 100 prospect, and one to two other pieces. And the Diamondbacks, Goldschmidt trade, those two other pieces were a prospect and a draft pick. In the bets trade, those two other pieces were one player and taking on David Price's contract. Lindor-Carrasco deal, again, the inclusion of Carrasco, it's not a perfect example, but again, you still got young big leaguer, current top 100, two players in the 11 to 20 range. For Nolan Arenado, the Rockies got no young big leaguers who were once top 100 prospects. Again, Austin Gomber's a good swing man. He's a nice guy to have on your staff, but at no point has he projected to be the type of major leaguer that is an impact player that most teams would make as the centerpiece in a trade like this. There are not only no top 100 prospects in here, but no one who is particularly close to the top 100 prospects. Again, Alharis Montero has been there before, but he's struggled with injuries. He's a big boy who might have to move off third. And most concerningly, he's an extraordinarily aggressive hitter to the point that there are some evaluators who are concerned whether or not the bat will actually play. He's just so aggressive. And the extra prospects were guys in the 20 to 30 range of their former team system. So in all these cases, Goldschmidt, Betts, you know, potentially Lindor, Carrasco, this was a low cost to pay for a star standout player. The Cardinals don't regret who they traded away to get Paul Goldschmidt. The Dodgers certainly don't regret who they traded away to get Mookie Betts. And the Rockies somehow managed to come in even below that. And some of this is the Rockies kind of painted themselves into this corner with just how public everything was with Nolan Arenado and Jeff Bridich and just where they are financially. Dick Monfort came right out and said, we are probably going to have to shed payroll this offseason. But even at the very, very modest baseline of what it takes to get a star position player who could leave at the end of the year, the Rockies didn't come close to it. And that's the part to me that just... You just kind of end up shaking your head. You summed up a key part of this, which is this became a player versus management feud. I mean, I feel like it's an accurate descriptor. And this is nothing against Jeff Breidich, but Nolan Arenado is more valuable to the Colorado Rockies than any front office employee. And they have chosen, you know, again, I don't know that if they had said, okay, we're going to go in a different direction in the front office, that that would have meant that Arenado would stay. But I do know that you look at where the Rockies are right now, and this is where I'll go off on a little tangent here. Like, I have never been the one who's like, I, I get all the time on Twitter, you know, if baseball fans say baseball needs a salary cap, salary cap, salary cap would make for parity in baseball. And to which I often respond I know they're different sports, but the NBA has a salary cap. And if I start the season by saying, so I'm going to, you know, there was about a five-year stretch there. I said, I'm just going to bet on whatever team LeBron is, and I'm going to bet on the Warriors to go to the finals. I'm good. You know, it's not like <laughs> baseball has more parity than many sports with salary caps. That said, I do understand today 
one argument for a salary cap and a floor, which is if you're a Rockies fan, there is no good news in this. In other, again, you're grasping onto the narrowest of threads, but in a salary cap sport, a trade like this would at least allow you to say, well, it does mean we're going to clear salary room, cap room, and we'll go out and see this team acquire someone in free agency. That, I mean, again, often it's a mirage. The Knicks were always about salary cap space for, a, what, a decade there, where it was like the, this year the salary cap room will, will really pay off. We're going to get all the stars, and every year it just kept rolling on. They didn't. But that said, there is no good news in this if you're a Rockies fan. There's not salary cap room because – that doesn't exist in baseball. There's not, oh, well, you know, again, there's not a top 100 prospect that you're getting back where you say, again, if you're a Red Sox fan a year ago, that was a bad deal. But at least you could be like, okay, I don't like it, but I'm hoping Verdugo really turns out. I'm hoping that Jeter Downs really turns out. Things like that. Nothing against Elhiris Montero, Mateo Gill, Tony Losi. Those aren't guys you can kind of hold on to and say they're going to give you, they're going to be a real part of the next great Rockies team. But you look at this, I mean, it's just going to get worse if you're the Rockies. You are, the Rockies are a team right now. Like if you said, tried to construct, Kyle, a plausible path, what is the next point where you would say, and again, if you just say it gets too far in the future where I could even project it, is there a point in 21, 22, 23, 24, 25 where you say, yeah, I can see this Rockies team contending not for an NL West crown, but for a playoff spot? If they still had Nolan Arenado and you said that John Gray, Antonio Sensatella, Kyle Freeland, Herman Marquez all got back to that 2017 form and they were all pitching well, I think there would be a chance they could be competitive. I'm not saying compete for the postseason, but again, so much of it is that starting rotation. And when they've pitched well, they were a competitive team. They made the playoffs in 2017, 2018. I think getting some of the older, ineffective veterans off their books, the Daniel Murphys of the world, I think that is helpful. They would actually be forced to play some players who are younger and better and cheaper at this point. That would have been a case where you said, okay, if the starting pitching comes together, you have Story, Arenado, Blackman, maybe one of Ryan McMahon, Garrett Hampson with more stable playing time and just putting it in one position and say, just focus on this and develop as a hitter. Maybe they can get, uh, if everything breaks right, they, they could be decently competitive in, in the 80-85 win range. But now that Nolan Arenado is gone, it's going to be... A while. This is the Dodgers and Potters division for 2021, 2022, 2023. And look, who knows, by that point, depending on what other trades the Rockies have made, if they've hit on three consecutive draft picks, if some of the guys in their farm system have taken a jump, you know, a lot can change in three years. I mean, all I have to do is look at MLB standings from three years ago, and you'll see teams that were in last place and looked like they couldn't figure it out are now contending for the postseason. That happens in almost every three-year increment you look at. So, I think it's hard to state anything definitively beyond that three-year window, but in order for the Rockies to start competing again and being in the postseason picture again, it's going to take many years of successful drafts, many years of smart trades, 
many years of smart free agent signings. I mean, you think about what the Padres built and what the Dodgers have built. It was built over multiple years. It didn't all come together in one offseason. The Padres and Dodgers built up their systems over multiple years. In the Dodgers case, they graduated most of their guys and became World Series champions. In the Padres case, they traded a lot of their guys to go get other star players. So there's a couple different ways you can do it, but the Rockies don't have that organizational talent right now. And it's going to take, again, just as it did for the Padres and Dodgers, many years of drafts, trades, international signings, free agent signings, all of it to build that organizational talent base. And I think that conservatively, we're looking at three years minimum and that's if everything goes right. And I hate to be pessimistic about that, but I will point out, I mean, they, this is a team that had one, two, three, four, has had five top 10 picks in the past, sorry, six in the past decade. Those top, those picks are David Dahl, who has had a very injury plagued career and, you know, has moved on. Uh, John Gray, who, has had an up and down career so far. Kyle Freeland, who's had an up and down career. Now, again, all those are big leaguers though. I didn't want to make point. Brendan Rogers, who's had an up and down career as a prospect so far, has made the majors, has had injury issues. You know, we still don't know. Riley Pint, who at this point, sorry, but you know, rule five eligible, unpicked, not even considered by anyone. It has not gone well. And Zach Veen was drafted last year. This is not a team who... They're in a division where the competitiveness of this division is brutal already. The Padres have drafted really well, signed a ton of international players, and have really developed something here. The Dodgers are the behemoth of baseball. They develop, they draft, they sign. They are better than everyone at talent acquisition from, you know, of using a holistic approach. They do it all. The Giants are a team that, you know, is still a few years away, but I kind of like where the Giants have gone with, you know, with this, you know, as far as they know that they're not in the window right now, but at the same time, farm systems getting better. I, I, again, now the thing I'll say is, is at this point, I know they said that Trevor story likely starts the season on the roster, but that doesn't necessarily mean he ends the season on the roster. And the thing that is going to be interesting to see is, can you actually get more in trade for Trevor Story, who is going to be a free agent, than you can for Nolan Arenado, who has the option of becoming a free agent, but has many, many millions of dollars left on the contract if he opts to remain in this contract? I think the answer may be yes, you know, which is kind of a weird world of where we are in baseball economics because no one would argue that Trevor Story is a better player than Nolan Arenado. But uh, again, this is a team that doesn't have a whole lot of those pieces to even, you know, to make the kind of moves like this. Now, the flip side of that is, is again, if I was offering anything, it's if they can hit on some of these moves and all, I mean, we are also in a world where you can, you can, construct you know you can add talent relatively inexpensively on the free agent market right now and so i mean that's one of the things that has been a problem for the rockies over the years is the rockies have had truly great players in some cases but they haven't had those pieces around them to make it all work in a lot of cases 
you know, they've had kind of the, the dolls, the Ryan Altapias, the, the Ryan McMahons have not been the complementary pieces to complement the Aeronautos and stories in the way they need them to be. And, you know, those are, those are fixable problems in a world where you, you look at, you know, what the, the, the price of, of players on relatively short-term deals has kind of the market has come to them on that. But, you know, we're, they're not even right now at that point. They're years away from that point because this is a team that even though they talked today on the press conference, they said they're not in a rebuild stage. They are in a rebuild stage, and that means that they're probably quite a ways away from that. All right, JJ, I want to dive in a little more on this trade return, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. All right, JJ, so we've talked a lot about the challenges facing the Rockies. You did the Cardinals Prospect Handbook chapter this year. I've done it in previous years. What is the best-case scenario outcome for the five players the Rockies acquired? Again, History tells us not all five of these guys are going to become productive big leaguers. Realistically, you're hoping for two of them. But let's just pretend for a second, all five of these guys, they get there and they reach their realistic ceiling. What are they? So let's go through them. And we'll do each of these. We'll kind of both do them at the time. Gomber. Back of the rotation starter, swingman, useful reliever who, you know, pitches 55, 65, 70 innings of useful relief in the pen. I, I think that's, I mean, it's hard for me to go beyond like number f- four is really being, you know, number four starter, like in a perfect world, doing that in Coors Field, when you also, you know, you've always had a breaking ball, maybe a little bit more problematic, but am I even being too optimistic there? Or is that like a best case scenario to you? I think the realistic best case scenario is more what he's been, this kind of swingman type, that number six, seven starter, if you will, who he's your long man spot starter in the pen. A guy gets hurt. He can give you anywhere from seven to 12 starts in a season, but he's not the guy you stick in your rotation. There's definitely value in that left-handed guy can give you some length, but I'm skeptical. He's a full-fledged rotation member. Again, I, I see him more in that swingman spot starter type, which again is valuable. Teams need that. But to me, that's kind of where I see it. And if we're talking about, let's call it the 80th percentile outcome, then you're looking at solid fifth starter. So I'll agree on that. Okay. Oh, here's Montero. Um, High average, you know, decent power third baseman who's below average fringy defensively. Um, Michael Franco-ish type, you know, is that a, I mean, again, I mean, I'm trying to do a realistic, but he has shown flashes. He's all, he is absolutely a player who has been hurt like many prospects have by the year layoff. Because if, if we were recording this coming off of his Midwest league season, we'd be talking about, wow, he really did impress. And then he had a very injury played 2019 where it is absolutely fair to say wrist injury, Hammett injury. If you say we never saw Montero like we want to see him in that year because he did have some injury issues, okay, but we didn't have a 2020 for him to kind of regain his stock. So, I mean, I think that there's a a wider range of variance there with him than there is with a guy like Gomber. You know, I, I think it's a hit first profile. I mean, he doesn't, He's got, he's strong, but his swing, everything about it, he's really wide. It's pretty level. It's 
you know, it's all about making hard contact, but he, it's not about selling out for power. I think it's, you know, in an ideal world, it does kind of lend itself more to average than power, although the power will come a little bit. I mean, it could be, again, realistic best case scenario is that he is a big league regular at third, maybe at first if he keeps getting bigger. But it's probably that guy who you have him there and you're saying, I mean, J.D. Davis is another guy as far as offensive profile that I kind of think of, you know, fitting in that group. I used to write up the Astros. It's that guy who you have and you're like, okay, but I don't know if you want him to be your guy long-term. What would you say? Yeah, so again, this is tough when you don't have the 2020 minor league season to kind of build off of. And he was a guy in particular that I know a lot of evaluators just based off doing the prospect handbook for the Cardinals after 2019 wanted to see in 2020 because he struggled, but he was hurt most of the year. He wasn't ready for the level. It just was not a good look. I saw him in the fall league. And again, it was not a very good look at the end of that season. In a lot of ways, 2019 was considered a lost year. And there's a lot of sense of don't bury him yet. Keep an eye on him in 2020. And we've talked about alternate sites and how it's really, really hard to make any judgments based off what happened there. Just because again, it wasn't real game situations. So I think realistically, yeah, you're looking at an everyday third baseman who's good, but not great. As you said, it's hit over power. I am a little skeptical he stays at third base, but again, that's based off what I saw in the fall of 2019. We don't know how these guys' bodies have changed. We don't know the work he might've put in this year. So it's very possible that he comes back in 2021 and things are better. It's really one of those situations where you're working off old information and you need to keep that in mind. But the guy I saw defensively in 2019, I mean, he's just a big guy and who isn't particularly quick. And you saw it especially exposed a little bit when he was charging in on balls, had to be on the move a little bit. He's listed 6'3", 235. He's just a big guy. And I don't see a major league third baseman just because I didn't see the quickness. When you think about big league third baseman, the plays they have to make, charging it on a bunt. And I just didn't see him able to make those plays. So there's a decent amount of things to like with the bat. Again, he's super aggressive and that's something he's going to have to work on. A lot of things that got talked about during the 2019 season was he just didn't really have a plan for upper level pitchers yet. Because again, he was rushed. He really wasn't ready for the level. He had really just gotten by on his natural gifts in A ball. And once he started facing double A pitching, you have to have a plan. He hadn't really developed it yet. So give him a little bit of a break because he wasn't, he just hadn't had the experience level necessary. But yeah, I think this is a roundabout way of me saying, I, I kind of agree with you. The realistic best case scenario is good everyday third baseman, not a superstar, not a cornerstone, but good player. You certainly don't mind having. Our BA grade for him in the handbook which is shipping really, really soon. I'm expecting to see those first pictures of people receiving the handbooks really soon. But he was a 55 extreme, which is good. That, is, that says that his op, upper level, you know, his realistic ceiling is that of even an above average regular, but extreme, the chances of meeting that are still pretty slim. You know, that's, <laughs> there are a lot of things on the to-do list to get there. Okay, we go to Tony Losey who Tony Losey's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a player that I've been following for a while because my nephew, uh, you know, I grew up in middle Georgia. My nephew went to the same school as Tony Losey, couple of years behind Losey in school, but Houston County high, uh, Houston, not Houston, H O U S T O N. Uh, you know, that was a great staff. You know, it was him. You, you had DL hall on the same staff 
who obviously all of you listening know who D.L. Hall is. Jake Fromm, who's now the Bills quarterback, is on that staff. Loves he went to Georgia. He was kind of a swing man. He was a reliever. Then it all clicked. Became a Friday starter for Georgia. Has had a solid career so far. It's good fastball. You know, breaking ball has potential, but at the same time, it's really a lot of it's, he throws a lot of breaking balls in the dirt, hoping that class A hitters will chase it. That's not a pitch that's going to be nearly as effective, you know, as he climbs the ladder. When you say what is his, you know, realistic, again, I want to be our realistic likely ceiling is probably a useful reliever. Um, There's always a chance he could start. He's, Got the size too. There's some durability, but I, I that reason he ranked in the 20s on the Cardinals list is is you most likely say, you know, I'll put it this way: Wood Jake Woodford was initially rumored to be in the deal, you know, and ended up being low seat. Well, they kind of fit the same profile. These guys who they're in the 20s because there's a plausible path to the big leagues for them, but at the same time, there's going to have to be some significant things click to see them be more than that useful, not like closer, not like the guy who shuts the door in the eighth inning, but every team needs 15 relievers over a course of a year. Tony Losey can be one of those. Uh, you know, that's, to me, that's kind of where he is, is, is now some of those guys who we ticket to be the up and down guy end up being better than that. Up and down guy becomes a seventh inning guy. You know, that's kind of what you're talking about, but, Again, a reliever who has some value, have, you know, especially when he has options, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not ready yet to go further than that. Am I being too pessimistic, Kyle, or is that realistic to you? A useful reliever is the yeah. deal with him. I think there's a chance he's more the guy who sticks in a bullpen. Maybe he's the sixth inning guy. Maybe he's the seventh inning guy, as opposed to the up and down guy. But useful reliever is the realistic best case scenario here. Mateo Gill, we're talking about the same situation we talked about with Montero. It's like, man, I wish we had a 2020 season because you're, you're talking about he is far away still. He has yet to have be able to put together the resume to where you really know what Mateo Gill is going to be. That said, going back to when he was in high school, it's always been Mateo Gill, son of Benji Gill. Really heady player, solid, reliable, puts the bat on the ball. Doesn't have a whole lot of impact. Probably a bottom-of-the-order bat if he's a regular. Most likely outcome, utility infielder. You know, the realistic ceiling. Now, again, there are guys who exceed that. I'm not saying that's his 100% ceiling, but that is his 75% outcome, do you want to say? Utility infielder. And, I, I you know, I, I hate to say it with that, but utility infielder, if you're a Rockies fan – it's a big deal if you're Mateo Gill. I mean, he could be a big leaguer. Being a big leaguer is very hard. But finding a utility infielder is something that is actually nowadays pretty easy to do, you know, whatever way, whatever path you want to take to filling that role. Am I being, again, too pessimistic? I, I, if I'm being too optimistic, uh, that would be really sad. But, you know, is that too pessimistic, would you say? No, again, you're talking about a, a really young infielder with a good feel for the game, does some good things in terms of defensively, can play both middle infield spots, offensively. He actually hit pretty well at Johnson City. I got some good scouting reports on him as well. 2019, there's a little more thump in there than I think he gets credit for. Eight doubles, 
two triples, seven homers in 51 games. Didn't strike out a ton. I think there's a chance he's a kind of solid, instinctive player who does some good things. Uh, you know, Benji Gill was his dad. I think naturally that's where people are going to go with it. And Benji Gill was a solid contributor, was a very important bench piece to that 2002 Angels World Series team and ended up playing eight years in the majors, had a perfectly respectable career, but was never a regular. It was always kind of that utility bench guy who could play around the infield. I think that's very possibly Mateo's future. Does he start at second base for a year at his peak? Depending on the team he's on, I don't think that's a terrible stretch. Again, he just he's so young. There's so much development left. And I think anytime you have a young guy with good instincts who can play both middle and field positions, can put the bat on the ball, there's something to work with. And and here's the discourage. I'm not trying to be pour cold water, but like you mentioned, Benji Gill. Benji Gill was a first rounder who as a 19-year-old in full season ball, you know, had a very solid season at Gastonia in the Sally League, goes to Texas League, double A in, in 1993 as a 20-year-old, hits 17 homers with a 275, 351, 456 stat line, is in triple A as a 21-year-old. Again, Gil Mateo has been kind of hurt by the layoff, but that's, you know, he's going to be ready for full season ball at that age. And was in the majors, you know, at age 20, and with that resume, with the, you know, with a much stronger, you know, like first round pick, stronger arm, all these things, Benji Gill was a utility man, largely for his career. And so, you know, I, that's the thing, you know, and then uh, Summers, who's the, the last player in this, you know, deal was a, a senior sign out of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, um, kind of had a a not particularly spectacular career there until his senior year kind of hadn't really had an effective year before that ERA always above five until senior year, good athlete. But I mean, talking to multiple people who've seen him, I wasn't able to get anyone who basically saw him as a future big leaguer. Now that doesn't mean I clearly, I would assume that the Rockies saw something here that they like him a little more than that, but you know, Orgarm was basically the general, uh, you know, generally what I got for him. And you and I have both studied this extensively. I mean, the reality of all these deals are, we just gave kind of the optimistic, you know, here's what they could be. And again, in Summer's case, reliever who makes it to the majors, I think is a realistic, optimistic case. That said, if you say, so we just talked about five players in this deal. If two of them reach their realistic, optimistic ceilings, that would be a good return. Because when you look at these trades, understandably, the reason you trade, you know, once you stop, once you're outside the top 100, once you're outside the top 200, which is what we're really talking here, if you're outside the top 200 prospects in baseball, the success rate of players who are in trades pretty is pretty low. I mean, I, I'll let you, you've studied it more recently. I've studied it than you've studied it. But when you studied it, I think it was like, you know, again, if you said that two out of the five players that the Rockies acquired in this trade ended up having major league careers of some length, that would be a positive outcome as far as the development. Is that fair? 
Yeah, absolutely. I've studied it mostly in the context of deadline trades where the dynamics are a little different than off-season trades. And generally speaking, the little bit of research I've done, off-season trades are a slightly higher success rate than in-season deadline trades. But yes, in-season deadline trades, one out of every five prospects traded at the deadline on average goes on to have some semblance of a major league career. Four out of five never do. And the off-season, and based off the little bit of research I've done, it's not as comprehensive, but it's less than two and five. It's, it's in that one to two range. So yes, if two of these five, again, it's really two of the four because Gomber is a big leaguer. If two of the four have any kind of extended big league career, even if it is a Benji Gill, pure utility man, not a slash line you're going to write home about, but he stayed in the majors, that's a win. And so just to kind of sum it up, we're talking about best case scenario is a solid everyday third baseman, a swing man, a reliever, a utility man, and an up and down relief type. That's best case scenario, what they got for Nolan Arenado. And realistically, we know that that isn't what's going to happen. Probably three and definitely two of these guys will I will say not even not have a major league career. We'll probably never even make the majors. It's just, it's really, really, really hard to reach the major leagues, even for a day. And we just, we know the history of this. And we've talked about this as a package that does not compare favorably to other packages for star players who could potentially have left after the following year. So realistically, if you're the Rockies, the hope is, okay, Gomber becomes a useful part of our rotation slash bullpen as a swingman. Montero becomes our everyday third baseman, and we are able to reinvest the money in other areas. That's probably the more actual realistic best case scenario. And maybe Tony Losi comes up and helps us out in the bullpen the sixth inning. Realistically, that's what we're talking about here. And for Nolan Arenado, that, that's a tough pill to swallow uh, just in terms of what he meant to that franchise, the caliber of player he is. And oh, by the way, he's still 29. And this isn't a case where they traded him at age 33 and there's a cliff coming. This is still a really, really, really elite level player who has, I feel safe saying at least three to four years of elite level production left and maybe more, maybe he can pull a Justin Turner and keep it going into his age 35, 36 seasons. But even if he doesn't, and there's a fall off after age 33, you're still talking about, you're getting four seasons of production that should put him among the best third baseman in baseball as he has been for most of this decade. Uh, he already at this moment is one of the most accomplished defensive third baseman of all time. I mean, that sounds crazy to say, but he has eight again, gold gloves, not everything, but he has eight of them. And those are not eight where everyone says, Oh, you know, so Rafael Palmero won that gold glove at first base. He, you know, he barely played first base this year. This is the guy who has been the best third baseman defensively, in the National League since the day effectively that he arrived in the majors. And, you know, he, and there's nothing to think that that will not remain the case. You know, if you look at Adrian Beltre, who I would say was kind of the, the gold standard defensive third baseman of the previous decade, Adrian Beltre, it, that's kind of an optimistic scenario, but Adrian Beltre, that tail off as he aged was pretty, was pretty, as a very slight slope. And I think part of that is, is that when you have defensive ability like these guys have, 
it allows you to contribute in ways other than just, you know, we're talking about, oh, he's a slugger, you know, well, that, that's going to help him as kind of the ages. If you, if he doesn't have, I know he didn't have a great 2020. It was also a 60 game season. There was a lot of things to that. He had a shoulder injury. I mean, he was playing hurt. Right. That's why. If, <laughs> if that injury does not end up being chronic, you know, a long-term debilitating issue. Yeah. This is one of those trades that you very well could look at and say, Oh, yeah, I mean, I, the one last thing I want to pull out on this is this also, if the Cardinals were in the NL West and we were talking about this, it's like, oh, they did this moves and this helps them try to keep up with an incredibly tough division. If they did this and they were in the East, we would say, well, that's a very big move for the Cardinals. But you know what? They are in a division where the Mets have gotten better, the Phillies I think have gotten a little bit better. The Braves have gotten worse, but they were the class of the division and they are getting guys back where you could still say if Soroka comes back healthy, this could be a better, you know, as good or close to as good a team in 2021. You'd say, okay, they had to do this to keep pace. They're doing this in a division where the Cubs have been selling off. You know, they've said goodbye to Schwarber added Peterson. So at, and you know, they're still, they're not any better. The Pirates have said, we are in full-blown, tear-it-down rebuild. The Brewers are, haven't made any moves to really be better, but, you know, maybe they're not worse. You know, you look at the, the Cardinals, I mean, the Reds have gotten worse. The Reds have sold off talent just simply to save payroll, and they were kind of shut out of their attempts to get a shortstop so far. The Cardinals, by doing something, by bringing back Wainwright, by adding Arenado, they're, they're the only team that's really like kind of, you know, you go, oh, okay, well, they may be better in 2021. And in the Central, being better may be enough to kind of run away with the division potentially. The Cardinals are the clear favorite in the National League Central now with this move. We talked about it on the podcast we did for the Cardinals top 30 prospects that there was a lot of frustration among the fan base, but this is still a team that has put together 13 straight winning seasons. They've shown they're willing to go out and make the big trade. If they feel it's warranted. We've seen that really throughout their history, Jim Edmonds, Larry Walker, Scott Rowland, Matt holiday, Paul Goldschmidt. And they did it again with Nolan Arenado. This is a really good team. I think you take a bow John Moselak and Michael Gersh for getting a player of this caliber again they didn't give up any of their best young major leaguers they didn't give up any of their top 10 prospects and they brought in one of the best players in baseball and i kind of want to pivot off that jj and ask you the question we have seen some trades this offseason that just to be frank feel very very lopsided at the outset and again there's a long history of trades that appear that way you look back a few years and it works out differently Things can change, players change, players evolve. But at the same time, more often than not, you know the veteran player is going to outperform the prospect package he was acquired for. That's just the nature of prospects and it's the nature of the value of established big leaguers. The U Darvish trade jumped out as particularly lopsided. I'm on record as saying that I actually thought the Josh Bell trade was an even worse trade than that because the U Darvish trade, you can imagine a scenario where one or two of them, they're lottery tickets, but if one or two of them hit, it could potentially work out. Now, not for five or six years, but you can at least see the scenario that happens. So I thought the Bell trade was even worse than that. Is this the most lopsided trade of the offseason for you? 
Yes. This is the most lopsided trade of the offseason. Again, I think if you said of all the players traded this offseason, I would put Francisco Lindor ahead of Nolan Arenado. But, I mean, they're in – so he's younger, you know. Again, Arenado, the Cardinals may have Arenado for longer, although we'll see if the Mets, you know, re-up Lindor. But just on pure talent, I would have – I would take Lindor right now over Arenado right now. But it's the second best player to me that has been traded of all these moves, you know. And when you look at the return – I think it's, I think it's the worst return of all these moves. Um, you know, we talked about the Darvish trade, but you know, the Bell trade again. I, Bell's not nearly. I, I expect the return for Bell. When I say the worst return compared to the talent, I should make that clear. Josh Bell and Nolan Arenado. Nothing against Josh Bell, but no one would compare. If you said that I'm trading, you know. I'm trading in my, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my 1988 Yugo, you know, you wouldn't expect to get the same return as they, Hey, I've got a portion the you know, in the garage, I want to trade in. Uh, Josh Bell's better than 1988 Yugo. It's a better Yugo. Point is yes. These are two very different calibers. So I, it's hard to compare those two, but that said, you know, I, I, the return on this, I mean, I would rather have the, the Cubs return for Darvish. Would you? Absolutely. To me, this is the most lopsided trade of the offseason. I do think that is the case, as we talked about, for the caliber of player Nolan Arenado is. Once again, we're talking about a top 10 position player in Major League Baseball. And as we talked about, the return, even by the standard of star player, only one year left realistically before he leaves, it just fell way, way, way short. There are teams who did very, very well for themselves. Lindor trade, for example. A lot of people focused on Francisco Lindor, as they should. He, again, is also one of the 10 best position players in all of Major League Baseball. But I think people really underestimate how good Carlos Carrasco is. So go back from the first year Carlos Carrasco became a full-time starter in the Major Leagues 2015. He's 10th among all Major League starters in Fangraph's war. The list is Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, Chris Sale, Clayton Kershaw, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Corey Kluber, Zach Greinke, Steven Strasburg, Carlos Carrasco. People don't think of him in that tier, but he is. He's just behind Strasburg. He's ahead of Noah Syndergaard. He's ahead of Aaron Nola. He's ahead of Trevor Bauer. And, and he's beat cancer during that time, too. You right, have to you know, interject that, that, too. That's with his 2019 season where he struggled very understandably, he had leukemia. And again, if war is not your favorite stat, and it's not mine, let's go to FIP. Well, in FIP, he's 11th, just behind Garrett Cole. You want to go more traditional and go ERA? He's still top 25. By any measure, conservatively, he's one of the top 25 starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. And he showed he still has it when he came back and pitched like he did last year. So the Mets acquired one of the 10 best position players in baseball. And let's just call it one of the top 25 starting pitchers in Major League Baseball. And did so for Ahmed Rosario, really did not have a future for them. One top 100 prospect and two players who ranked in the 11 to 20 range in their system who are fine, but are replaceable. So again, a kind of a buy low candidate in Ahmed Rosario, a number 50 to 100 prospect in Andres Jimenez, and two decent but hardly irreplaceable prospects for one of the top 10 position players in baseball and one of the 25 best starting pitchers in baseball. 
I think the Mets did incredibly well for themselves in that trade. They got significantly better without trading anyone who was really, really going to hurt them. They didn't trade Dom Smith. They didn't trade Brandon Nimmo, Michael Conforto. They didn't trade any of those guys. They traded Ahmed Rosario, who had kind of played himself out of a starting role for them. So I think that the Mets probably did the best in terms of getting significantly better than any other team this offseason in terms of one singular trade. The Padres trades all put together, you can make the argument. But just one singular trade, I think the Mets probably did better than even people realize because I think they underestimate how good Carlos Carrasco is. But they certainly gave up more to get significantly better than the Cardinals did for Nolan Arenado. And again, you know, some of the Pirate trades I talked about, I hated the Josh Bell trade. I thought the Joe Musgrove trade was fair. Hudson Head's a very, very promising young center field prospect. I can see him becoming an everyday center fielder. They did okay there. I thought that was a fair and equitable trade. And I thought they actually did very well for themselves in the Jamison Tyone trade to get four prospects as good as the guys they got for Tyone coming off of a second Tommy John surgery and just not knowing what he's going to be able to give anyone. I thought they did well. So again, one good trade, one fair trade, one bad trade for the Pirates. You know, that evens itself out a little bit. This is the trade for me that just, when you look at what the return was, who the caliber of player was, I do have to say this is the most lopsided deal one way or the other. And the Cardinals deserve a lot of credit for being able to get a player of this caliber at the price they did. Uh, you know, uh, it's been because of everything that's gone on this offseason, it sometimes is hard to wrap my brain around the fact that we are effectively, as we record this, two weeks away from players reporting to spring training for major league spring training. We are also just around two weeks away, around, but a little more than two weeks away from Division One college baseball getting going again. We are it's the the off season is wrapping up here, even though it doesn't feel like it partly because there's also a whole lot of players, there are teams that haven't made moves. And there's a whole lot of players who where Marcelo Zuna ends up, where Nelson Cruz ends up. There are players who where Trevor have, Bauer ends up, where You're Trevor Bauer ends up, yep. Award winner. where those players end up will have a significant impact on what the postseason, the playoff chances of a number of teams will look like in 2021. So there's still a lot to be done. That said, you just rattled it off. I mean, I, I do want people to kind of remember though, it's been an interesting off season. It's easy to get focused on all the frustrating things that go on in baseball, but at the same time, it has been a very interesting hot stove league so far. And we'll probably have more to analyze as well, but you know, but again, this one is one, it is, you know, it is head scratching if you're a Rockies fan and, you know, I feel for Rockies fans because of that, you know, but if you're a Cardinals fan, I, I can't, re- I cannot think of a trade. There's very rarely a trade where you can be more excited about the trade than this one, because this is all upside with very little downside, especially in the short term downside. If you told me that Nolan Arenado's tails off and so his age, his 2025 and 2026 seasons are not up to par, okay. But if you said, hey, you added Nolan Arenado for 21 and likely 21, 22, 23, 24, that's a massive win if you're a Cardinals fan. 
Yeah, it's interesting. You saying that made me go back and re-examine some of the returns and some of their previous trades when they went out and acquired a star. Paul Goldschmidt, it was a case where, you know, yeah, there's certainly some risk that Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly end up performing really, really well. Both of them have been a little inconsistent to this point, but in either case, you're happy with Paul Goldschmidt. But yeah, I mean, you did give up a couple players who have a chance to be good big leaguers. You go back to the Scott Rowland trade. They did trade away Placido Polanco, who of course had a very, very good career. They trade away Bud Smith and Mike Timlin as well. And Timlin was a good reliever for a long time. So yeah, I mean, they traded away good established players to make that deal happen. You know, the Jim Edmonds trade for Kent Bottenfield and Adam Kennedy. Bottenfield was a really good starting pitcher at the time and Kennedy, a good second base prospect who ended up becoming a key part of an Angels World Series team and was ALCS MVP that year. You go back to the Matt Holiday trade. I mean, that's probably the one where they acquired a star without giving up a whole lot of anything. Clayton Mortensen, Shane Peterson, and Brett Wallace. But again, at the time, Brett Wallace was a first round pick the year before. So at the exact moment in time, there was still a little no, no. more emphasis. I, I, I will say this. I remember at that time, that was one of those very clear moments where it was like, whoa, they realized very quickly, oh, we got to – when Brett Wallace was traded, there was some very much a feeling around the industry, you know, at the time that was like, oh, they realized within an hour and a half that Brett Wallace was not what they hoped Brett Wallace was. And they got – and they they sold they, – they traded him away before anyone else could realize, you know, that – but – I'll throw one other like third baseman trade. Josh Donaldson's been traded twice in his career. You know, well, I'm sorry. Josh Donaldson as a great player has been traded twice in his career. And either time, I remember when the Donaldson was traded, you know, to the Blue Jays, there was an undercurrent of if the A's make the trade, there has to be something smart that we're missing. And so there was an attempt to, you know, there were write-ups of it at the time that's like, oh, well, they got Franklin Barreto and, you know, and they got a couple of arms that could end up being okay. So that's really good for Donaldson. Maybe he tails off, you know, all that. No, it was a terrible trade at the time. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then, you, you know, again, I know he had some injuries, but then Donaldson gets traded for Julian Merriweather down the road. and. Again, with all these trades, if you acquire a star player who's still in, again, who's not 38, who's still in the prime of his career, very rarely are you going to look back on this and go, oh, yeah, that was a terrible idea to acquire one of the better players in baseball. Any team acquiring Josh Donaldson has looked back on it, you know, and said, you know what, having Josh Donaldson on our team is probably a good thing. Yeah, acquiring Josh Donaldson after his... 2014 season when he was 28 years old. So you acquired him for his age 29 season. And of course he goes on to win MVP. And by the way, that was another trade of one young big leaguer, Brett Laurie, a top 100 prospect at the time, Franklin Barreto, and two other prospects, Sean Nolan and Kendall Graveman. So again, even if you get the quote unquote market, you're probably still not going to win the trade. And again, by all accounts, it just goes back to, if you have a star, keep him. This idea that he's more valuable to trade than he is to you on the field very, very rarely actually turns out to be true. That's first. Second, even if you get quote-unquote market value, it's probably not going to work out. And the Rockies didn't get market value. 
And that just means it's even more likely that this is not going to work out. We'll see. All these players, especially in the case of Montero and Losi and Gill and Summers, Montero has a little bit of time above the Class A levels, but nothing significant due to injuries, and he wasn't really ready for it. So I think you can kind of almost, I don't want to say ignore it, but don't go too crazy on it. These are young players, a lot of development left. Maybe Austin Gomber, given a full rotation shot, because again, it was a crowded rotation in St. Louis. Maybe he surprises people and things happen. But I do think it's fair to say, when you look at the history, you look at all the information we do have about these guys, who we know Nolan Arenado to be, his age, how players of his talent level tend to still be good into age 32, 33, and in some cases beyond, but at the very least, that age. I just, Cardinals front office, give yourselves a pat on the back. There's no question this was a tough offseason for them after seeing what Randy Rosarena did in the postseason, then not picking up Colton Wong's option. Wainwright and Molina hit free agency. There's not a whole lot going on. And really, even at the end of the season, losing Dakota Hudson, he went down after having Tommy John surgery. So it was shaping up to be a rough winter for St. Louis and potentially a rough 2021. And they acted, re-signing Wainwright, making this trade. They got significantly better without materially affecting their long-term outlook in any negative way through any of the players they traded. And anytime you can do that, that's a win, plain and simple. It is. Perfect way to wrap it up. That it is. All right, everyone. That'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.